You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. If you would please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, making our way through this gospel. If you don't have a Bible, then we can, uh, we can certainly get a Bible to you. We're going to look at several verses, one at a time. This is a scene in which Jesus calls Matthew Levi, and I want to stress this morning uh, two things in particular. The, the first is that it's Jesus who is defining what this relationship is, and maybe, maybe that's the first thing, is that you need to hear that Christianity is not about a philosophical system that we are subservient to. It, Christianity is about a relationship, a reconciled relationship, a relationship of peace with the one who has made all things and uh, sustains all things. Christianity is about a relationship. But in this particular story, this relationship is shown to, this is the second thing I want you to pay attention to, to a man who is extraordinarily powerful. Sometimes we uh, think about the disciples as insignificant uh, members of society. But Matthew Levi is a powerful, powerful man. And that's why I'm asking our little theologians as I preach this morning to draw a a collection of skyscrapers. Because Matthew's the kind of man that if he were with us today, he would have a very important job at the top of a very large skyscraper. That's the kind of man we're dealing with. Actually, that's wrong. That's the kind of man Jesus is dealing with. The kind of man he approaches and then draws into a relationship with God the Father. So that's what I want you to draw, little theologians. Just, you know, a skyscape or skyscrapers. Uh, That's likely to be the kind of setting in which Matthew Levi would live in were he with us today. Our passage again is Luke chapter 5. We're going to read from verses 27, verse 27 to 32. Let me pray for us. We'll look at this scripture together. Our Father, we do love you. We thank you for speaking to us in your word. We pray, Father, that you would, that you would increase our awareness of your love for us. We, uh, we become angry with you because you don't speak to us in ways that we want you to speak to us. Father, you speak to us out of your word, and we pray that you'd make us good students of your word. Would we be in your word every day? And Father, we need your Holy Spirit that we would understand your word, not just as we gather this morning, but anything that we are able to glean from your word that is true comes by your Holy Spirit. Spirit, be with us as we spend time this morning in this passage from Luke chapter 5. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 5, 27. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of our Lord. And we have to, on some level, address the topic of what exactly conversion looks like. Uh, What does conversion to Christianity look like? And some look at this scene and they say this isn't actually the picture of a man uh, being converted. He had a relationship uh, prior to this scene with Jesus. And I agree with that. Presumably, uh, Matthew had been mulling things over as he got to know Jesus, got to know his disciples. And uh, likely this is, this is not a snapshot of a conversion such that all conversions ought to look just like this. A simple appeal, and then immediately uh, a man uh, rises up and he leaves everything. What we see in Scripture is we see a variety of conversions. Some people start out testing Jesus uh, privately and publicly, and then over time they come to faith in Him. And we know that in the New Testament church, what was very startling is that many priests actually became Christians through the preaching ministry of Peter. We know that some people just quietly spent time with Jesus and walked with Him got to know more and more about Him, and then become a follower of His. If truth be told, we really don't get a lot of pictures of what conversion looks like in Scripture. But that needs to at least be in the back of your mind as you're looking at this remarkable experience when Jesus comes to Matthew and He says, follow me, and Matthew does. You know, there's a context that sets us up for understanding this particular scene. So often when you look at Scripture, you can uh, look in one scene and and pull a number of different themes out of it, but it's a good habit to consider the context. And here we want to consider what Luke has already told Theophilus. Remember, a letter addressed to one person. Earlier in chapter 5, Luke has uh, showed us how it was when Jesus came to Peter and Jesus tells Peter to uh, cast the net and then a, a great uh, amount of fish come, uh, come in the net, placed in the boat, and 5, 10, and 11, Jesus says to Peter, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. This is the first time that word followed shows up, Luke 5, 11. And after that, Luke then gives us the scene of the leprous man who comes to Jesus. But it is Jesus Himself who stretches out His hand, taking the initiative to touch this man. And uh, when we looked at this passage, I said to you, it's a picture of the catching of a man. Jesus catches this man by touching him. We might think of the paralytic the scene that follows immediately after the scene of this leprous man, keeping in mind that the leprous man actually is told by Jesus to go into Jerusalem and to broadcast his faith there before the priest. And then we come come to the scene where a paralytic is brought before Jesus. And this is a scene in which Jesus begins to get pushback from the Pharisees, presumably hearing about his ministry, witnessing the work of the leprous man as he goes into Jerusalem. And they begin to fight against Jesus, but it's Jesus who says to the paralytic man, man, your sins are forgiven, and another man has been caught. He's been caught. 
And we see that because Luke makes sure that Theophilus understands that Jesus tells this man to rise, to pick up your bed, and to go home. And Luke says in in Luke 5.26 that this man went home glorifying God. He's a man who's changed not just physically, he's changed spiritually. And we see all of these uh, scenes of people being caught by Jesus. And here we see another picture like that. A picture that has a picture of a relationship. And this time it's Matthew Levi who's caught. He's caught. You know, we will often think about a relationship with Jesus as if it's any relationship I want to have with Jesus. That Jesus doesn't actually care about the details of that relationship. He just wants to be your friend. But I would argue differently that Jesus draws us to God in a specific kind of relationship. That Jesus has standards with regards to the way we relate to God, with regard to the way we relate to Him. And that's what I want us to see in this story of Matthew Levi, is that Christianity is a relationship with a center. It's a relationship with a center. It's a relationship that's centered on the glory of Jesus. It's not any kind of relationship as if we could own Jesus and speak about Jesus the way we speak about a team that we follow. It's a very specific kind of relationship that is centered on the glory of Jesus Himself. And I want to say two things before I get to the conclusion of this sermon. The first thing I want to say is I want to say that Jesus initiates a particular kind of relationship with Matthew Levi. A particular kind of relationship. And I want to move from there and I want, to, I, want to, I want you to see that this relationship generates a particular kind of response. A particular kind of response from Levi and indeed from all Christians. But let's begin here. That Jesus initiates a particular kind of relationship with Matthew Levi. You know, we know from Scripture so very little about Matthew Levi. We know, of course, what we get in this scene right here beginning Matthew 5.27. I'm sorry, Luke 5.27. He appears later in Luke's Gospel in chapter 6. He's listed with all of the disciples. And we're also told in Acts chapter 1 that Matthew Levi is present with Jesus after his ascension in the upper room in Jerusalem. When we look at Matthew's Gospel, we see there that Matthew wrote a Gospel. We know that about him, though some would doubt that. Uh, I don't doubt that. Matthew's the writer of that Gospel. Tradition tells us that Matthew had a vibrant preaching ministry in uh, Judea. So Jerusalem and the environs, Matthew was a preacher. And at this point, church tradition then uh, splits. There are some traditions in the, in the life of the church that say that Matthew died as a martyr. But there are other traditions that tell us that he lived a long, fruitful life in gospel ministry and died of natural causes. But we know so little about him. And so it's very interesting then that what Luke does tell us about him is his profession. And when Luke mentions his profession, there's a lot that goes with that. It's not just this is his profession. There is so much associated with that that profession that we need to spend time here and talk about that a little bit. You see, Matthew is a tax collector. There's two kinds of tax collectors. There's a tax collector that is uh, collecting, they're mostly domestic. They're uh, collecting uh, 
taxes from the immediate village or city in which they are serving. And then there are tax collectors that are like Matthew, and they have a broader domain. Uh, where Matthew is collecting is a place where goods are coming from all over the Fertile Crescent, all over the, uh, the Levant. And as these goods are, are coming in, uh, Matthew is one of those tax collectors who is, has a great deal of authority. Enormous amounts of volume are going through the custom house in which Matthew works. Technically, only a Roman of a certain class could be a tax collector. But these Romans would get together and they would contract that actual work of tax collecting to locals. Now, not just any locals. They have to be locals who are loyal to them, locals who are good employees, locals who know a thing or two about the immediate culture. But the birth of the stock market comes from the kind of people that Matthew works for. These are the men in the Roman Empire who actually have the authority to collect taxes. And they hire these employees that they would collect taxes from particular provinces. And as the money would come in, these men would have power to offer loans against the money that's coming in. These men would have power to uh, sell future profits from their province. And so a futures market, a commodity market develops around them. These are the proto-stock uh, uh, stock traders. That's who these people are. These are the capitalists of the Roman Empire. And they hire guys like Matthew. There's some value that Matthew had in order to get hired. Matthew most likely spoke many languages. He certainly spoke Greek, the language of commerce. And he certainly spoke Aramaic that he could deal in his setting. He's surrounded by uh, Aramaic speakers. Presumably, he also spoke Latin, that he might be able to deal effectively with his uh, networks. His employers are virtually all Roman. And where Matthew is collecting taxes is a nexus point for imports and exports. So it's very likely that Matthew spoke even more languages than these. He's a man who spoke several languages. He was important to his employer. And he's a man who, uh, as a part of his work, is extremely well networked. He knew people. He socialized with people. And he knew how to socialize. He doesn't have a large house for no reason at all. He has a large house that he might fill it with his contacts, develop relationships. It's how he would advance in his career. Clearly, Matthew is a wealthy man, not simply the possession of large houses, but most tax collectors who worked in custom houses were very wealthy. And Matthew was the kind of guy who, do, who did numbers well. He's the kind of guy who could compute percentages quickly because the income tax policy in Rome was extraordinarily complicated. There's 1% on every transaction. And then there's a head tax on every individual in the Roman Empire between the age of 12 and 65. And they had, to, they had to pay annually. That's just for the income tax. There's a ground tax as well. Everyone who owns property has to pay on what that property is able to produce. 10% for grain, 5% for wine. 
There are taxes associated with imports and exports. And Matthew would have to, he would have to know how all of that functioned. So as goods come into his city, Matthew would have the authority to, to ask that the owner of the goods would unload and unpack everything. Unpack everything. Lay it all out here. Because Matthew had the responsibility of assessing the value and then assessing the tax. There were also infrastructure taxes. You, you can't travel in the Roman Empire for free. You have to pay a bridge tax or a road tax. You had to pay harbor dues. The kind of tax collector that Matthew was was the kind of tax collector that within rabbinic writing was especially hated. This was the kind of tax collector that was known for making stuff up. Just make up a tax and you have the authority to demand it right there. Matthew knew the economy intimately, but he also knew social circles intimately. He's the kind of guy who read The Economist. He knew what was going on, not just in Judea, but all of Judea's neighbors. He knew what was going on in Rome. He had to know a lot about the commodities that are coming to him. He's a man who knows everything about grain. He knows everything about metalwork. He knows everything about weapons. He knows everything about textiles, everything about spices. He has to assess the value of all of these goods. He's got to read The Economist. He's got to keep up. Matthew's that kind of guy. Very dangerous to the rabbis. Very hated by the rabbis. This man has not just sold out to Roman authorities. This man has given up everything for Roman authorities. This man can get almost anything that he pleases. And that's important to notice when we look at the conversion of Matthew Levi. That's important to notice when we see this. Jesus initiating a relationship with a guy like this. Again, it's probably not their first meeting but clearly, this scene that Luke gives to us about Jesus coming to Matthew is a scene in which Jesus initiates the relationship. I want you to imagine Jesus pushing His way through a crowd to get to Matthew. It's not in Scripture. But Matthew would always be surrounded by people. A very busy man. And just imagine our Lord and Savior pushing through a crowd to get to this man. Do you think Jesus had to stand in line in order to have this kind of face time with Matthew? It's a remarkable picture. Christian, you need to take this to heart. That in your salvation, it's Jesus pushing through a crowd to get to you. Making His way to you. Not you finding Him. Him finding you. Not you traveling a great distance to Him, but Him traveling through the muck of the world, that he would come to you. He initiates this relationship with Matthew. And as he pushes through that crowd and he comes to Matthew, it's not any kind of relationship. Hey, I wanted to say hi. Hey, are you free later? We should get to know each other better. It's a kind of relationship in which Jesus calls all the shots because he goes to Matthew and he, and he asserts his own authority in Matthew's place of authority. Did you hear that? Jesus asserts his own authority in Matthew's place of authority and he goes to Matthew and he says, follow me. Follow me. Amidst all of this, 
cash changing hands all over the place. People looking to be able to meet with Matthew, get their goods counted, measured, whatever, so that they can move on. And it's Jesus that comes to Matthew, and he defines a relationship in which he's the center. He says, follow me. What will this relationship be like? You know, Luke's already giving a hint to Theophilus. What's the relationship going to be like? Whatever this relationship is going to be like, it's going to be focused on the one who says, follow me. The word follow is a command. It's a command. Follow me. Jesus initiates this relationship with Matthew, finding him, and then he defines that relationship by saying, follow me. And it's not only initiating and defining, but it's one in which Jesus demands everything. Matthew understands that he must leave everything. Clearly, that's what, that's what Luke is telling us, that when Matthew does follow, follow Jesus, he actually leaves everything. And if you look at this passage and skip down to verse 32, you'll find out more about what happened. Look what Jesus says in verse 32. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but, I've called, I've, but to call sinners to repentance. And Matthew understands that that's why Jesus is there. It's time, Matthew. It's time for you to leave everything. You are a sinner. And the only thing that you need is me. And now is the time for you to turn and to leave everything. This is the kind of demand that Jesus makes. He demands everything. Everything. And it's a relationship that actually does a few things in Matthew's life. And that's where I want us to switch our gears. Because it's a relationship that generates a particular kind of response. We've addressed this, but let me speak more about what Matthew did. Verse 28 says that he left everything. He rose and he followed him. And that word rose should trigger something in our mind. And if you look back to Luke 5.25, you should see what it triggers. He rose, didn't tell us at first that he was seated, but he rose and he followed. And the last time we saw that word rose was the man who was a paralytic rising up and taking his mat. It was a man who received new life. And we're not told that Matthew is a paralytic or that he's sick in any way, and yet he rose into new life. That's how we're to understand leaving all of his life's prior commitments are set behind him. I was reading one commentator who specializes in first century Roman life. And he says, to serve as a tax collector was the kind of job that you can only do once. You lose that job, you never return. When a fisherman leaves everything to follow Jesus, there's still that life of fishing that's lingering in the background. You can return to that. But keep in mind that at Matthew's level, when he left the job of tax collecting, he cannot have it back. It's done. It's over. And so he left all of his prior life commitments. He'll never be allowed to return. He left his means of making money. He left his, his networking potential takes a serious hit. He left a lot. 
That's why Luke says to Theophilus, this is a man who left everything. All of his life commitments, money, relationships, status, he left them. But he also left his spiritual commitments as well. Verse 32 says that what he did is he repented. That's what it means to turn to Jesus. It's turning away from something. And Hebrews 6.1 says that the something that's turned away from is dead works. That Matthew had a way of making sense of his life. Matthew had a way of buttressing himself that he might be able to stand before God. And that way is called works in Hebrews 6.1. Matthew repented. And it's not just giving up life commitments, it's giving up all of your spiritual commitments. He used to use his money and his wealth and his status to have a reconciled relationship with God. He used to use that for his peace and for his happiness. And Jesus is saying all of that needs to be set aside. We'll talk a little bit more about this. But there is a leaving that describes the response of Matthew. But there's not only a leaving, there's a celebration. There's a celebration. Immediately, Matthew puts together a a banquet or a feast in the Greek. If you go outside of biblical literature, this word could be used specifically as a reception of some sort. It's, It's not just a party. It's a reception for someone important. It's very likely that Jesus and the salvation that He offers is the center of this party. So it's not simply a reception for an earthly person. It's a reception for the divine one who can save. Jesus and salvation is front and center. So often we look at this passage and we say, this is a passage that says that even as a Christian, I can go and I can be around non-Christians. And, and that is true. As a Christian, you still can have friends with non-Christians. I hope that you are a Christian here this morning who has just tons of friends who are not believers. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is that Matthew is not ashamed to go into these friendships and to proclaim in public the banner of Jesus Christ. That's how one theologian describes this. It's it's a banquet in which he invites all of his friends that he might fly one person's banner, the banner of Jesus Christ, the one who has saved him. So it's a party indeed. It's, It's a banquet. It's a reception. But it's about someone else. It's about Jesus. One of the ways you can put this is is Matthew is, in a way, cashing in on his network. I, I hope that doesn't sound too crass to you. But he's taking the network that he has, and he's treating them as friendships that he has been given as a gift by the Holy Spirit. And he's going into those friendships, and he's broadcasting the gospel of peace that comes through Jesus Christ. He's actually taking that precious network, and he's using it for the glory of Jesus Now, I don't think that there's a hard and fast application here, but it's certainly something that I lay before you as food for thought. How do we use our friendships in such a way to bring glory to our Savior? Do we even think about our friendships with non-believers in such a way? There's a lot at stake at this particular reception. Perhaps there were many receptions that were thrown in that particular house. 
But what, but what Matthew is doing right now is he's saying to all of his friends, he says, you are all privileged as tax collectors. You are all privileged as a special body of people in our city and in this Roman province. You are privileged by your vocation. You are privileged by being a part of my network. But I have, sent, I have found a larger privilege. Do you see what he's doing? It's not the same as the banquet that he had the week before the week before. This one is different. He leaves everything. Leaves the custom house. People know about it. And he throws a banquet. And he says, you are my privileged guests. We live a privileged life. But I have found more privilege. I love you. Great gig. Glad you have this gig. I gave it up because there's someone more important right here, and I'd like for you to meet him. It's a different kind of banquet, isn't it? But it's, it's only two of the three responses that, that Luke tells us about Matthew. Matthew leaves everything. Matthew celebrates. He throws a banquet. And the third thing is, is that Matthew suffers. He pays an unexpected price. Verse 30 says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Would you please look at verse 30? And would you notice that the grumbling is directed to the disciples? It's directed to the disciples. Do you know why that's important? Because when Matthew tells the scene, and when Mark tells the scene, they say that the grumbling is directed towards Jesus. It's Jesus' behavior that the Pharisees are um, uh, exercising all of their bile. For some reason, Luke says that it's, it may be Jesus as well, to be sure it is, but Luke wants Theophilus to see that when someone becomes a Christian, they are united with other disciples of Christ. And by being united with these other disciples of Christ, they receive vitriol and anger that is really meant for Christ. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. Matthew has not left everything for very long before he is already receiving pr pressure and persecution. He's left this job that the Pharisees call vile. The people ought to be happy, oughtn't they? What do you think the Pharisees are so angry about? He left this job. I'm no longer a tax collector. The Pharisees the Pharisee should be delighted, but they're not delighted. They're angry and they're grumbling. They, they certainly wanted him to leave his job, but they also want him to leave his associations. They want him to leave those people, not be around those people anymore. And not only this, the Pharisees want the disciples to leave Jesus, to no longer associate even with him. I want to propose to you a question I'm not going to answer. And the question is this, what is a Pharisee today? What's a Pharisee today. You know, when we read the word Pharisee in the Bible, it refers to a class of people. Is there a class of people today that are Pharisees? The reason I say I'm not going to answer that is because in my Christian walk, I have um, uh, uh, thought that, well, maybe the Pharisees are the Mormons. They seem to be pretty moralistic as a body of people, as a class of people. I've also picked on uh, fundamentalist Christians before, I'm not trying to make everyone feel awkward. 
But, but I have, in, in my walk, I've looked at, well, that's a class of people, and they seem to be really, really legalistic most of the time. Maybe it's them. And, and I'm not here to just pick on everyone, but I, I want to suggest that, that maybe a better way of understanding what a, what a Pharisee is, is to get away from that word Pharisee as a class of people and to think about the principle behind Phariseeism. You know, there weren't Pharisees in the Old Testament. Does that mean there wasn't Phariseeism in the Old Testament? To be sure, there was Phariseeism in the Old Testament. What then is Phariseeism? Uh, it's not a class, it's a, it's a principle. And the principle revolves around getting some, some kind of favor from God for your works. Receiving some favor from God for your works. That's just a, a broad uh, understanding of what Phariseeism is. And, and that's why Matthew could run into trouble in this particular audience. There's almost nothing that he can do to, to be respected by the Pharisees. You quit your job. You can stop hanging out with associates. Matthew is not able to become a Pharisee. So what, what, what do they want him to do? They want him to place all of his confidence in a collection of works. That's what they want him to do. And Matthew has said, I won't do that. I'm instead going to put all of my confidence in the work of another, the one who is being proclaimed at this banquet. Listen to Matthew's response once again. He responds in a particular way. He leaves everything, everything that he could possibly do for peace and for happiness, he left. And he celebrates at what he has in Christ Jesus so that he could point to Jesus and say, he is, my, he is my peace, He is my happiness, He is my success, He is my status, he, he is my financial provision, He is my everything, because I just left everything else. And then he suffers for that. He suffers. He's misunderstood. There's a leaving, there's a celebration, there's a suffering. Well, here's, here's the point, and I'll finish here. Christianity is a relationship that's centered on someone else's glory. Because look what happens in this scene. In this particular scene, Jesus pipes in. Jesus says something. Those of you with red-letter Bibles, it gets read. And Jesus actually intercedes. And it's fantastic, right? Because, oh, Matthew has just taken a hit. This poor man cannot win. And Jesus steps in and he defends Matthew, sticking up for his disciples. But he doesn't. He doesn't stick up for his disciples. It's almost as if he does the exact opposite, right? If you're, a, if you're kind of a shrimpy guy in school, it's nice to have a, have a nice big guy as a friend. who can step in and protect you. And Jesus intercedes, but not for Matthew's glory, not for the glory of disciples. Look what Jesus does. When Jesus steps in and your Bible turns red... Jesus calls his disciples sinners. How, how does that help? I'm flagging here, Jesus. The party has gone awry. And I'm being persecuted by people. Because I love you and I follow you. And Jesus, rather than defending them, he actually uses your life as an occasion to propagate his gospel. And he says to all of these people at the party, in public, can you imagine, in public, Jesus says, yeah, those disciples, Matthew in particular, these guys are not righteous. They're actually not righteous. Your expectation of them to be righteous is never going to be granted. It's never going to be fulfilled. They're actually not righteous. And beyond that, they're sinners. They're sinful. They're sinners. 
He uses the example of someone who is sick that has only one kind of medicine, and that's him. If you're here this morning as a Christian, I want you to hear that as something good. Jesus fights for his own glory. And he's not ashamed to use you for that glory. That others, they can know that you're a sinner. They ought to know that you're a sinner. They should know that you were once sick and you've been healed in one way through Jesus Christ. He uses the example of us, undeserving sinners, whom he has of his own initiative come to, touched, saved, given new life, used. That's the example to a watching world, Christian. It's you always being prepared to say to others that you are nothing outside of the grace of Jesus Christ. You have no skill, you have no status, you have no money, you have nothing that gives you any standing before God. Everything about you is Christ. And your life is not lived for yourself. And when Jesus steps in to defend, He's defending not you, He's defending Himself. And the gospel goes out through the life of the church. The church gathers together to worship 52 days out of the year. They come, they gather around this table, and what are they doing? They're partaking in the work of someone else. They're saying, I cannot do this. Someone had to be broken for me. Someone's blood had to pour out and cover me. I cannot do this. This is called grace. And it is the only way someone becomes a Christian. It is by God coming to you in the grace of His Son. And it is by you setting aside all of your other efforts at happiness and at peace that you might receive this happiness, this peace that comes through Jesus. I want to pray for us and then we'll come to the table to celebrate the peace and happiness that comes from that Jesus. Let's pray. Father, lead us by Your Word. Lead us by the fellowship of the church. And lead us here at the table, as we are nourished not only physically, and that just a tiny bit, but as we are nourished spiritually, and that truly is nourishment. We come in Jesus' name. Amen.